Good morning. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you, Rector, for inviting me, not only to the conference this week, but also to preach this morning. It's my first visit to Charleston, though not my first visit to South Carolina. Uh, and I certainly hope it won't be my last visit to Charleston. What a lovely city you have here. Prophets and prophets. Rejoice and be glad when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets. This is surely one of the most extraordinary things ever said in the history of the world by someone seeking to gain, rather than lose, a band of followers. Politicians tell us, follow me and you'll get lower taxes and improved public services. Lifestyle gurus in glossy magazines tell us, follow my way of thinking and you'll lose weight, live in a sunshiny house and go on the most fabulous holidays. Jesus tells us, rejoice and be glad when men persecute you, for so they persecuted the prophets. What prophets did Jesus have in mind? Probably Jeremiah, who was mocked and ridiculed for spe speaking the word of God. Probably Daniel, famously thrown to the lions. Probably John the Baptist, his own cousin, John the Baptist, beheaded by Herod. These three prophets, and no doubt many others, were in Jesus' mind when he spoke of those prophets who were persecuted in various ways and who were examples of faithful obedience to God. It is to these figures that he points in order to encourage his own disciples when they face trials and tribulations on account of their faith. They're following in an honorable tradition. They're the latest in a long, sad, but noble and heroic line of people who hold fast to the faith yet suffer because of it. And persecution soon fell upon Jesus' own first followers. Saint Stephen is a notable example, of course, both because he was the first martyr and because his death is actually recorded in the scriptures. Saint Peter the leader of the apostles, is another prime example. We're told in the scriptures that the manner of Peter's death would glorify God, but there's no direct account of how it happened. Tradition says that he was crucified upside down, killed in Rome in around the year 64. Then St. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, he was imprisoned and eventually also died in Rome around about the same time as Peter, Tradition tells us that Paul was beheaded. All of the first apostles, with the exception of St. John, were killed, we're told, for their faith. The letter to the Hebrews tells us that some were torn apart by wild beasts in the arena for the entertainment of Roman audiences. Some were put to death by the sword, some by stoning. And in fact, so many Christians were martyred in the early centuries of the church that martyrdom began to acquire a sort of fatal attraction. Some began to think 
that the only Christian life worth living was the one that ended in a martyr's death. That idea was stamped on by Gregory of Nazianzus in the fourth century, who declared that although it was cowardly to refuse death and suffering for Christ's sake, it was rash and wrong to seek it out actively and deliberately. Those who proactively sought persecution were given a cautionary example by the sad fate of a Christian of Smyrna named Quintus, who in the second century persuaded several of his fellow believers to declare themselves Christians purposefully to attract the attentions of the hostile civil authority. Quintus became a warning of what might happen to the overzealous because at the last minute he wavered and couldn't go through with it, though his companions did persevere to the end. The case of Quintus was an object lesson in the foolishness of actively seeking out suffering and persecution and death. And it's always been the case that Christians should not invite persecution, however admirable it may be, to suffer it when it comes. For all this talk of rejoicing when being persecuted, ours is not a masochistic faith. Pain and persecution and death in and of themselves are evils. They're symptoms of this fallen world and should be avoided, insofar as that's possible, consistent with keeping the faith. Think of our Lord Jesus himself, who prayed earnestly that the cup of suffering might pass from him. On the night of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus besought his heavenly Father repeatedly that the impending persecution coming his way might somehow be stopped or deflected. Yet not my will, but thine be done. And the fact that Jesus was troubled in his spirit and sweated drops of blood in the agony of apprehension about the torture that awaited him reminds us not to take his use of the word rejoice too literally. Rejoice when men persecute you is an example of Jewish hyperbole. It's like when Jesus says, unless you hate your father and mother, you cannot be my disciple. This is overstatement for effect. This is making the maximum emphasis drawing the starkest possible contrast in order to drive home the point unmistakably. Since God is love, it's impossible that Jesus, the Son of God, can be literally telling his followers to hate people. What the statement means is that if push comes to shove, if, if a choice has to be made between following God and following man, it's clear which we are to favor and which we are to turn our face against. That's what hate means. Likewise, when our Lord says, rejoice when men persecute you, he means it's better to suffer faithfully than to avoid suffering through faithlessness. And since it is better, objectively better, well, joy of a sort can at least be taken in the rightness of the decision even if no joy whatsoever attends the circumstances and the immediate consequences of the decision. The rightness of the decision is the thing to rejoice in. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Rejoice that you keep your soul. There's no profit in throwing away your soul for the sake of gaining the world, only grievous loss. For those faithful prophets who held firm in the darkest hour, who suffer grievous loss of whatever it may be, reputation, health, wealth, opportunities, relationships, even life itself, for those faithful prophets, loss will ultimately turn out to be a price worth paying. But this message is foolishness to those who are perishing. So St. Paul reminds us in the reading from the letter to the Corinthians. It's foolishness to those who determine profit according to a, this worldly calculus. But to those who are being saved, this message is the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. These last few days, as we've been having this excellent conference about the writings of C.S. Lewis, we have been noting that one of the features of Lewis's output as a writer was a series of children's books. I'm sure you know them, the Chronicles of Narnia, and they center upon children. And indeed, the most prominent of the children, the one who's most spiritually mature, is the youngest, the weakest, the little girl, Lucy Pevensey. And she is the one who has the purity of heart to find her way into the kingdom of the Christ-like lion, Aslan. It is Lucy who sees Aslan more frequently than any of her older and stronger and wiser siblings. It's Lucy who's given the distinction of speaking the final line of dialogue in the final chronicle. Lucy is a fine fictional example of the spiritual, <clears throat> of the spiritual logic of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a place for the strong, in worldly terms, it's a place for those able to exercise humble trust because they recognize their natural weakness. The kingdom of God is, a, is not a place for grand accomplishments necessarily, but simply for doing whatever you're called upon to do, be it notable or humdrum, be it remarkable or utterly overlookable. That's the life principle of the kingdom. St. Teresa of Calcutta put it this way, not all of us can do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. C.S. Lewis's friend and colleague, J.R.R.R.R.R. Tolkien, <laughs> Tolkien understood and celebrated this foolish way of the kingdom foolish on the face of it, I mean, wise underneath. Tolkien, like Lewis, was a devout Christian, and in Tolkien's case, he depicted this divine folly in his fiction through the, the little folk, not children, but halflings, hobbits. It's not the great 
kingdoms of Gondor or Rohan that save the day in the Lord of the Rings, not the mighty men of valor like Boromir and Theoden. Rather, it's the home-loving hobbit, Frodo, who does the most daring and most important deed. He says, I suppose I must go alone, but I feel very small and, well, desperate. The enemy is so strong and terrible. In the movies, in the film version of The Lord of the Rings, that gets distilled into the sentence, even the smallest person can change the course of the future, which Tolkien never said, as it happens, but which does nicely encapsulate the point. This is the hour of the Shire folk, Tolkien wrote, when they arise from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great. And when writing about the hobbits in his personal correspondence, Tolkien sometimes used that phrase, exaltavit humiles, the humble shall be exalted, from Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. Tolkien had a profound devotion to the Blessed Virgin. He said, all my own perception of beauty, both in majesty and simplicity, is founded upon Our Lady. Because Mary is the archetypal example of the one who, through childlike humility and trust, shows the deepest wisdom. And in her case, she grows great literally, physically, for she becomes great with child. The life principle of the kingdom takes root in her, and after nine months gestation, she shows to the world the very face of heavenly wisdom and power in the person of her son Jesus, the visible image of the invisible God. Yet Mary also suffered massively in doing the will of the Lord. A sword will pierce your own heart also, as Simeon prophesied to her when she presented Jesus in the temple. I was pleased to see just before we came in, in your ante-chapel above the door, a, a beautiful painting of the presentation of Jesus in the temple. But don't take that as a, as a sweet and, and, and romantic saccharine moment of piety only. It's also a promise of suffering to come. A sword will pierce your own heart also. Persecution will come to Mary. Likewise, in their fictions, Lewis and Tolkien present the children and the hobbits as, as not immune from suffering and persecution, but nonetheless able to withstand it because of their purity of heart, their singularity of soul. In this realm of mutability and impermanence that we find ourselves in, we've got used, haven't we, to equivocating. We can't imagine doing anything so simplistic as, well, <laughs> as loving the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength, that would be excessive. That would be extreme. No, no, no. Moderation in all things. And thus, we rationalize our way out of the risk of persecution. But if we remain loyal, if we remain faithful, persecutions of various kinds will come at some point, at some level. 
Scripture is emphatic about this. St. Paul writes to Timothy, all who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It may not have happened to you yet. It may be that the persecution you eventually suffer will be mild. Let us pray that it is mild. Maybe it will be nothing worse than a disdainful remark from a colleague or some person keeping their distance from you because you are a follower of Christ. But if you follow Christ faithfully sooner or later, there will be some price to pay which can properly be characterized as persecution. And so we need to be ready to pay the price. We need to have made up our minds in advance where true profit is to be made. And this teaching is a recurrent feature of the biblical message, isn't it? Everywhere in the pages of the Scriptures, we're reminded that singularity, simplicity, purity of heart is essential to spiritual health. Our Lord says a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. St. James says... A double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, will not receive anything from the Lord. St. Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth, our word to you was not yes and no. Again and again throughout sacred scripture we meet this refrain, be wholehearted, be pure of heart, don't turn aside to right or left. If with all your heart you truly seek me, you shall ever surely find me. You shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and him only shall you serve. The frequency of the advice suggests the pervasiveness of the problem. And almost all of us do have this problem, do we not? We try to serve God a fair bit of the time, but not to such an extent that it becomes inconveniently all-encompassing. We're a bit like reluctant taxpayers. We pay our tax to God, as it were, and hope that there'll be enough left over for us to live on. Our life is divided, like a soldier's life, into time on duty and time off duty, like a, a child's day in school and out of school. We don't turn our backs on God completely, but do we really face Him unreservedly? Don't we tend more to adopt an uncomfortable middle position where we are unhappily in love with God, as the Danish theologian Kierkegaard has it? The tax which our spiritual conscience levies upon us doesn't really leave us enough to live on satisfactorily. As long as we're in this category of person, we must either feel guilt because we've not paid the tax or penury because we have. We're trying to have our cake and eat it. We're trying to live with a mind which is not made up. But an open mind on an ultimate question like this is like an open mouth with regard to food. The only point in having an open mind is like having an open mouth, as Chesterton said, to shut it again on something solid. 
After all, frankly, what's the point in having cake if you don't eat it? Now, I think our reluctance to commit ourselves unreservedly arises not just from our fear of persecution, though that certainly, and we are right to fear it. Our Lord himself feared it. Our reluctance also stems from our belief that to be simple-hearted is the same thing as being simple-minded. If you look at the history of the word simple, you'll find that it originally meant something like a piece of parchment or the leaf of a tree. The Latin word simplex, sim, that part of the word, means once, and plex, the other part of the word, is related to the verb plicare, to fold. So the word simple might be translated into English as, as one fold, or even just page. <laughs> fold a simple page of paper in half, and it turns from being simplex into being duplex, hence duplicity. Simplicity, rather than being a quality of the naive or the underdeveloped, was originally that pure state which was prior to later regrettable complications. The simple was the undivided, that which was not compound, that which rang true, that which was at unity with itself, which was one, as the Lord our God is one as the life of a saint is about one thing. We've already talked about hobbits and children. Let's think of them again for a moment. As a way out of our spiritual dividedness and duplicity, we do well to observe and emulate children, at least in one respect, because children up to a certain age, whatever their other faults, haven't usually acquired that sense of dignity which makes them prefer looking absurd to getting what they actually need. They know what they need, and they go for it with refreshingly vulgar appetite. That cake that was placed on my plate each Sunday tea time when I was a boy, I always ate it, and quickly. If I didn't, my brothers would have snaffled it. <laughs> and it's the same to compare low things with high in respect of what our Heavenly Father puts before us. We should receive what he serves us because what he serves us is himself. He has nothing better to give us than himself. And so we should receive him indeed in the Holy Eucharist, in the sacred scriptures, in one another, in serving the poor. All of these things constitute our reception of God's grace, of God's gift, of God himself. They, it, they enable us to live more and more in his power, on his terms, and less and less on our own resources, those treacherous and transient riches of this world that we might otherwise be inclined to trust. I must decrease, he must increase, said John the Baptist. For me to live is Christ, writes St. Paul. The Baptist and St. Paul and many others like them down the centuries, right up to the modern day, one is occasionally privileged to meet such people. They have done away with the tiresome business of adjusting the rival claims of self 
and God by the simple expedient of giving up the claims of self altogether. They've made their mind up. And it's a beautiful and humbling sight when you see it. Often these people, those who have made up their minds, were doubly or triply folded in on themselves to begin with. They have complicated pasts. Sometimes they were totally screwed up, as we say. But they were given the grace when the moment of truth came to take their stand, to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and by opposing end them in the power of the cross of Christ. And in this light we can begin to comprehend why the cross has inevitably become not just a, a sign of terrible persecution, but something that is often now beautiful in itself, carved skillfully in wood maybe, or made from precious metals and studded with jewels, not out of masochism, but out of a recognition that that which means suffering and death, death to our reliance on the things of this world, ultimately means life. Life in Christ, life towards God. Think of the hangman's noose that becomes a halo. Think of an electric chair that becomes a throne. What brings death turns out miraculously to be the very means of life and blessing. You didn't want to have to let go of these things. You quite rightly resisted the persecution, but you realize that this relinquishing of the tight hold which our natural loves have over us is actually a liberation. This acceptance of persecution, however it comes to us, frees us. And that's a worthwhile exchange. That's a good deal. Following our Lord, rejoicing when others persecute us is worth it because he's the one who can truly say, I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. He is the conqueror of death and Hades. His cross defeats the enemy that it signifies. Think of his cross as a plus sign, marking the credit side of the ledger, the true prophet that awaits the good and faithful servant. At the conference this week, there were two speakers from Wheaton College, Dr. Phil Riken, the president of the college, and Dr. Jerry Root, who has taught at Wheaton for many decades. And as I was interacting with them and thinking about this sermon, I was brought, it was brought to my mind, to my memory, um, that other Wheaton grad. You might have heard of him, Jim Elliott. He was a Christian missionary in Ecuador, and he died for his faith as, I think, just a 29-year-old man in 1956. He was persecuted for righteousness' sake, and he bore it. He took it. He held firm in the darkest hour. And when faced, he knew that this persecution was heading his way. When faced with the risk of losing his life, for the sake of his faith, Jim Elliot remarked, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. May it be so with us too. Amen.